Father, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts individually and also together as a body the direction that you're taking us. We want to be open. We want to be teachable this morning. And we invite your Holy Spirit to move in our midst in this place. That these things could become real and alive to us. We ask and we trust that in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. And the houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed man far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. As a terebinth tree, or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be at stump. This is the beginning of the call and the ministry of Isaiah. Chronologically, as well as logically, the book of Isaiah begins here. With Isaiah getting his call to go out and be a representative for God. Now when Jesus called his disciples, you remember he said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Also, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you haven't chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And then again in the last part of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to every living creature. And he gave what is called the Great Commission. Well, the message is clear. God not only chooses us, but He uses us. There is a life that God has for you and I apart from just salvation. God has a work and a commission for you and I to do. If God only wanted to save us, then the minute that you accepted the Lord, you'd probably fall over dead. So you could go right to heaven and be in the sweet by and by. 
But why has God kept us here? Because there's a commission to fulfill. God has a plan for us, and he wants to use us to reach the world around him. He wants to make us fishers of men. He wants our fruit to remain. He wants us to go out into all the world and to preach the gospel. You know, Billy Graham once said that you and I are not responsible in this present generation for the past generations that are unreached. And you and I are not directly responsible for the future generations after we die. But God will hold us accountable for reaching the present generation upon this earth. To go out into all the world and share the gospel. The truth of the matter is God is looking for people to use. So many people say, oh, I want to be used by God. I want to do anything God wants me to do. The truth is God is looking. The eyes of the Lord, the scripture says, go to and fro throughout the entire earth that he might show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal or perfect toward him. Even as God used one of the kings in the Old Testament and said that, the eyes of the Lord are looking for people who will say, God, use me, I'm available. Show yourself strong on my behalf that I can do your work. Here we see Isaiah, who is eager and open to do the Lord's work as God commissions him. I think there are a lot of Christians in just my short few years of ministry and talking to a lot of people, there are a lot of Christians who are unfulfilled in what they're doing. They seek after things, they seek after many different objects in this life, and yet in talking to so many of them, they're, they're unfulfilled. They want to do so much more for the Lord, and yet it seems that they're just never fulfilled in, in serving the Lord. You know, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. I think we mistake what that says, and we always quote it as if it's supposed to say, Seek first God doesn't say seek God first. It says seek first the kingdom of God. Now, there are plenty of scriptures that indicate that we should seek the Lord, that we should have that one-on-one -on -one just seeking after God. But Jesus in that scripture said, seek first the kingdom of God. That is the establishment of the kingdom of God upon the earth. Set your sights, number one, to do God's work, to see that his kingdom is established, not your own kingdom. And if your sights and if your your drive and your ambition is to see His kingdom set up upon the earth. All these things shall be added unto you. Our problem so often is that we're seeking everything else and expecting the kingdom to be added unto us. We want to get everything straightened out and our problems straightened out in our life first before we seek God's kingdom because we're told by so many people, oh, you can't serve the Lord until you get this, 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 and this worked out. And so we're so often seeking everything else but the work of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And we wonder why things get so messed up. But if you seek first the kingdom, all these things should be added unto us. Now let's look at the vision of Isaiah and see how God was preparing him for service. For this whole vision, this whole encounter with God was to prepare Isaiah to go out and do God's bidding, to do God's work as he would be sent out. And first of all, notice when this vision happened. In the year, verse 1, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The time that this vision occurred was a very strategic, crucial time. It was the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a good king. He was considered one of the greatest kings in Israel. He had his times of blowing it. But all in all, he was a good king. He ascended the throne when he was 16 years of age. 
And for 52 years he reigned in Judah, the southern kingdom. He was considered a good king. It says in the book of Chronicles, as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. And God did prosper him. And the southern kingdom of Judah enjoyed great prosperity because this man sought the Lord. Uzziah had military campaigns against the enemies of God and recaptured a lot of stolen territory. He had land improvements throughout all of Judah, and Judah loved him. Now, toward the later end of his reign, he was filled up with pride, and he entered the temple of God and was smitten with leprosy, and he died a leper. And although he did slip, he was considered one of the greatest kings that Israel had. But now he's dead. And the people of Judah were beginning to be terrified. As they realized, 52 years of prosperity has been in our land. 52 years of godly leadership. And now he's dead. And the news began to spread from village to village, from town to town, from street to street. And it came to Isaiah. And Isaiah, who loved King Uzziah, was probably very broken up. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah was probably thinking, oh, this is the end. Fifty-two good years are gone. Good King Uzziah is dying. The throne is empty. The seat is vacated. Who will lead us? Who's going to lead our people anymore? For already in the north, the Assyrians were coming down and starting to capture the northern kingdom of Israel. Judah was next. And Isaiah was thinking, who is going to occupy the throne? Who will lead us? And it is that time that he saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. You see, in the midst of bleakness, in the midst of oppression, when he was wondering who's going to sit on the throne now, he saw the Lord sitting on the throne. It was Isaiah's, or God's reminder to Isaiah that God is still in control. And this is so necessary as we go out to serve the Lord to realize that no matter how bleak the situation is, God is still in charge. You know, we have a tendency to look to man. To put our confidence in man. And to think that men are going to figure out the whole mess that the world is in. In the post-World War II days of the late 40s and early 50s, a time of prosperity in the country, people were looking now toward the government of, the, of our country and of the world to figure out all of the problems. Any problems that would arise during that time, the attitude was basically, the government will figure out a problem. We have a president for this. Don't worry, these guys will get together and solve out all our problems. We have nothing to worry about. But that optimism has turned into extreme pessimism in the 1980s. People generally have an attitude of pessimism as they look at the world today. As the problems are compounded and get worse and worse, it's folly to think that the governments are just going to figure out all of the world's problems now. In fact, many of them are getting us into the problems, not finding a way out. When we look at the news, as Peter Jennings comes on and Ted Koppel, and feed us all of this bad news, we're prone to think, oh man, there's no hope. We live in an incredible generation where these nuclear warheads are pointed at our population centers. 
One of these warheads on the ICBMs has more destructive power, one of them, than all of the destructive power by both sides in World War II. Pointed at us. We hear of the statistics. We're glutted with statistics of starvation, divorce, crime, and all the other stuff. We tend to look at it in despair, and we would despair if we don't realize that God is still on the throne. God is still in control. If we don't see the vision, in 1985, when everything is bleak and black, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on the throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. We need that vision of God, else we despair. Us that are evangelistic-minded could also despair as you look at the need in the world. As you think of the statistic that 2.7 billion people, more than half of the world's present population, has never once heard the gospel. Never once heard the name of Jesus. Here's something that would cause you to despair. A little experiment. Take your hand and turn it upside down and place your fingers on your pulse. Go ahead. Every time you feel your heart beating, someone just died and went to hell. That's a true statistic. Every single time you hear your heart beat. And that could cause not only a lot of guilt, but a lot of incredible despair. What can I do? That doesn't make me feel any better. That makes me feel worse. And there are many people that have gone out to do the work of God that have despaired as they go out because the need is so overwhelming and they fail to see that God is still on the throne. Not that we throw out our tracks and not witness anymore, but that God knows what He's doing, that He's still on the throne, that in Him we live and move and have our being. Otherwise, we despair. And it was in this time of bleak oppression and despair that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. This is the reason why worship is so important in the church. Because so often we come in so totally out of perspective. We come in very short-sighted. We come in with problems weighing on us. And we enter into God's house, for lack of a better word. We gather with God's people. And as we sing, the words remind us of God's goodness, God's power, God's majesty, His sovereignty, His glory, that He's in charge. And finally, we're left at the very throne of God in worship and praise. And it corrects our vision, our sight. We often come in so short-sighted. We've just come back from the doctor. He said, it's cancer. Uncurable in most cases. We think, oh, despair. Or we just heard about a divorce. Or perhaps a spouse is divorcing you. Or an affair. Or a child runaway. Or any number of problems. And when you come into worship, that realigns and readjusts our sights. We realize, hey, God's still in control. There's still pain, it's still tough, but God is sitting on the throne of my heart. He's still in charge. And we need that vision of God when we come in with those problems. Example, in the Old Testament there was a guy named Elisha. He had a servant named Gehazi. And they were sitting 
as the Assyrian army was encamped around the city of Jerusalem. And Gehazi looks up and he sees all of these thousands and thousands of troops ready to pounce upon Jerusalem. And he goes, wakes up the servant, Elijah, Elijah, hey, check this out. And look at all those people. We're doomed. They're going to wipe us out. We bit the dust. And Elisha goes, Lord, just open this guy's eyes that he can see the truth. Open his eyes. Let him see spiritually. As he looked again, Gehazi went out and he saw the angels of the Lord encamped around the Assyrian army. And instead of saying, we're doomed, he said, oh man, they're doomed. They've had it. They've got those angels. They're just going to pounce on them, man. They're dead meat. He needed his eyes open. When we come into worship so often, that opens up our eyes, the spiritual eyes of our understanding. As we've gone through the week's problems and now we realize, hey, God's still in control. God didn't vacate the throne. God didn't leave me out in the cold to rot. God's still in charge. And this is a prerequisite to serving God, is knowing that God is in charge. Because when you get out there and you begin to serve the Lord wherever God is calling you, and you fail to realize this, there'll be times that you'll just want to cash it all in. But God is still on the throne. Now, let's look at what he saw and what he heard. Above it, verse 2, stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door, that is the door frame, were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out. It must have been pretty loud music. And the house was filled with smoke. As he looked, he saw not only the Lord sitting on a throne with the dazzling robes sweeping through the temple, but he saw these strange creatures called seraphim which is plural for seraph, meaning actually angels of God. We really It's hard to discern what this means. We know it means the burning ones originally. But these seem to be angels that surround God's throne. And here Isaiah looks up and they're hovering. They're, they're flying, but they're hovering. They're sort of stationary. And they're worshiping the Lord. And they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And actually it means they're crying ceaselessly. It's a constant cry of worship. Sounds a lot like Revelation chapter 4 where John was before the throne room of God seeing the angels worship. And they're crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, listen to that song. There's two parts to it. Two verses. The first verse, the angels describe the holiness of God, the majesty of God. He's saying you're in the presence of God and God is holy, God is to be worshipped. But also the angels look down upon the earth. And as they look down upon the earth, they say the whole earth is full of His glory. Now I don't know if that sounds strange to you, but that sounds kind of weird to me. Because the angels saw completely the opposite of what Isaiah saw. Isaiah didn't see the earth filled with God's glory. Isaiah saw chaos. Problems, oppression, the Assyrians about ready to take the kingdom away from Israel. 
And it was the truth. Assyria was going to take the kingdom away from Israel. There was going to be chaos. There was going to be judgment of God. But the angels are looking to the future and by faith singing the victory and the final outcome of what will happen. The final outcome is that the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. Another prerequisite for service, seeing God's final outcome of what the whole plan's going to be, whatever God sends us into, whatever God wants us to do, seeing the final outcome, the whole earth, he said, is full of his glory. So, Isaiah walks away from this vision of God, from this encounter with God, seeing the holiness of God, the majesty of God, that God has not vacated the throne, that no matter how black the situation may be in his life, God is still in charge, and he walks away from this encounter And he realizes the final restoration of the nation of Israel. Now let's look at the effect that it had on him. Verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am totally blown away. It's my version. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. This is the effect that it had on Isaiah. He, it was, he was stunned. Now, since most of us haven't had this kind of experience, it's hard to relate to it, but do you remember the movie The Wizard of Oz? When Dorothy and the lion and the scarecrow came in and the guy was pulling the strings behind the little thing and the wizard was smoking and all that stuff. And they started shaking and they're all of a sudden realizing there's power here and they started feeling very feeble need. Very empty. Even in a incredibly more so situation, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And all of a sudden, he just doesn't get a glimpse of the Lord in God's character, but he sees himself in his own true light. There's no pride there anymore when you're in God's presence. He's not saying, well, here am I. But he's saying, woe is me. I am undone. I see myself as I really am in God's presence. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst foul-mouthed people, literally. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. This is the effect of anyone who has any true encounter with God. Anyone who sees God in His glory and majesty will see also Himself. When you're in God's presence and you truly encounter the Lord, it strips off your pride. You're left in openness and nakedness before God. You're conscious of your your own failures, your own shortcomings. As you see God, you also see yourself for who you really are in your own true light. Woe is me, for I am undone. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount started out by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Better translation, Blessed are those who know that they are poverty-stricken spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. A person who is poor in spirit, like Isaiah, is one who is conscious of his own failures, conscious of his own sins, conscious of his own shortcomings. It's the opposite of spiritual pride. A person who has pride has never had any true encounter with God at all. You can't stand before God full of pride. It strips you of that. You remember Peter, good old Peter in the New Testament. 
Jesus is speaking to a multitude. He says, hey, Peter, let's move out from shore a little bit. I want to speak to the people. He gets in the boat and he starts speaking to the people. Starts sharing with them. And after he's done addressing the crowd, he goes, okay, man, let's go out into the, sh- into the ocean, out into the sea here, and we'll just uh, go fishing. You throw down your nets and you'll catch a great catch. Now, Peter's response. Now, Peter's naturally aggressive, naturally assertive, very strong-willed, very self-confident. And whenever you get a self-confident person such as Peter, that person needs to be broken a little bit harder, and Peter certainly was. But in this incident, incident, as they go out, and Jesus says, Peter, let down your nets for a great catch. Peter goes, "Um, look, Lord, I'm a fisherman, okay? We've been toiling all night. We know that the best fishing is at night. I've done this as a living. I'm a pro. You know, it's like a novice saying, hey, uh, let's just, you know, use this kind of bait. If you've ever gone out fishing with a pro fisherman, you know, and, they, and you bring up a suggestion, they go, oh, man. Look, just just watch, okay? And Jesus said, Peter, let down your nets. Lord, we've been fishing all night. I know what I'm doing. Nevertheless, at thy word, we'll do it. So they let down the nets and a great catch of fish. You remember the rest of the story. So much so they had to have another boat come in and the boat started to sink because the fish were so great. All of a sudden, Peter realized who he's dealing with. All of a sudden, Peter realizes that he's in the presence of God himself. And he says, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He got a vision. He was conscious of his own shortcomings. He realized I just had an encounter with the Lord. This is miraculous stuff happening. And in seeing who Jesus was, he also saw himself. He was conscious of his shortcomings. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, a prerequisite to being used by God is humility. Humility is always a prerequisite. God uses and lifts up the humble. You know, the people that God truly uses are usually the most amazed that God uses them. Although someone else might be amazed, how can God use that person? The person himself who's being used usually echoes that a lot stronger. How in the world could God use me? Is a greatest miracle. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And a person who is used by God has come to this place of brokenness. And it's a prerequisite to being used by God is this humility. You're amazed. Gosh, God's using me. This is great. Because we all know what total airheads we are, right? Let's be honest. You know, a person who's going to be used by God, and I've had some people come and say, I'm called to a mighty ministry. I'll go away. You know, I'm called to this. And, and you can just tell where the person's at. Just so full of, I've got to be used in a mighty way. And a person who's truly used comes to this place where he realizes that he's nothing before the Lord. There's a lot of people in service today who need an encounter with God. They're out serving the Lord, pumping up their self-esteem. What they really need to see is that they need to be humble before God. Woe is me! For I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a generation of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now another strange incident occurs, which sort of sounds painful as you look at it on the surface. One of the seraphim flew to me, verse 6, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. 
What is going on here? It's cleansing. The altar that is spoken about is called the altar of sacrifice in the court of the temple. It is where sin was dealt with. There was a sacrifice offered on the altar of sacrifice. Excuse me, the altar of sacrifice. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Sin was dealt with at this altar. One of the live coals was taken and touched the lips of Isaiah, for Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. He realized his inadequacies. God came and cleansed him, forgave him. For it says in verse 7, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Cleansing. Now, I want you to realize here that Isaiah is a believer. He's not an unbeliever who needs cleansing. He is a believer. He follows God and yet he also needs cleansing. We as believers need that constant washing and cleansing of Jesus Christ to be fit for service. We need to be cleansed. We come humbly. We recognize our inadequacies. God cleanses them. And we confess our inadequacies. God heals us. Jesus gave a parable, a story, about a certain Pharisee who felt very self-confident. He said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that poor wretched person over here, this publican. I fast and I pray and I do all these things. But the other man, the poor publican, beat his breast and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man went away justified because he confessed his sin. The other person had nothing to confess, so there's nothing to be forgiven. A person must confess and then God cleanses. Here Isaiah confesses and God cleanses him. Now let's look at the commission in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. I love that verse. So eager. So ready. Here am I. Send me. In verse 9. Then he said, Go and tell this people. It's interesting that Isaiah never heard the call of God until there was cleansing in his life. Until there was a real cleansing in his life. Until he really saw himself in God's presence and there was humility. Until he had a real encounter with God in worship. In the presence of God. And now in this verse, God is asking for volunteers. Who's going to go for us? Who can I send? The emphasis in this verse isn't on who will go. The emphasis is on for us. A lot of people can go and do things, but it's another thing to go and be a representative of God. Who will go for us? God is asking for volunteers. You see, you know the unique thing about world evangelism is that God chooses to use human beings. Which if you think of it is probably one of the worst ways to get the job done on the surface if you think about it. Because human beings are so unpredictable, they fail so often. Couldn't God have more adequately used angels to preach His gospel? Shining from the heavens with 250,000 watt speakers hanging from the moon? (laughs) Showing signs and wonders in the sky so that everyone would know beyond a doubt that this guy means business. We better repent. God could have done that. In fact, in the book of Revelation during the tribulation, God will send an angel through heaven to proclaim the gospel. But until then, God has graciously limited himself to using you and me. He loves to use people. And he is asking for volunteers. Who will go? Who can I send? And who will go for us? Readiness 
and eagerness of Isaiah. He wants to go. Here am I, send me. How different this is from some of the other people God used. Moses. Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. Oh, Lord, who am I? You know, I, I'm just Moses. Who am I that I should go? God said, don't worry about that. I'll be with you. And then Moses said, Ah, oh, but they're not going to listen to me. They're going to think I made this whole thing up myself. God said, okay, Moses, what do you have in your hand? He goes, oh, I have a rod. Cast it down. Turned into a serpent. He said, I'm going to do signs and wonders as you go and proclaim the gospel. I'll be with you. And Moses said, uh, but uh, Lord, uh, I can't talk. I st 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 stutter, Lord. I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Heavy speech, heavy tongue. He eventually had four excuses. The last excuse was, oh, Lord, send somebody else. I don't want to go. When God called Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, oh, Lord, I'm just a kid. They're not going to listen to me. I don't have the experience or the gray hairs. I'm just a youth. God said, quit saying you're a youth. I'm going to put my words in your mouth and you'll be a vessel of mine. Just be available. Just be open. Here, Isaiah is ready to go. Who will go for us? Here I am. Over here. Send me. I want to go. Eagerness and availability to share the gospel. And that is what primarily God is looking for. Someone who's available. God will qualify you. God will prepare you. God will train you. You know, so often we think God only calls the qualified. No, He qualifies the called. He calls a person and He equips the person. We often think, I must prepare myself and then God will call me. No, no. God calls you first. And God will prepare you. God will qualify you. And it was this beautiful attitude of eagerness, of availability to do God's work. No excuses. So often when God places this call in our life, you and I have excuses. Well, I'm too young to go. Or, I'm too old to go. Or, I'm not talented enough. Or, I'm too this. Or, I'm too pretty. I've heard that excuse before. And Isaiah could have very easily used that excuse, for he was a very rich, influential kind of a person. He was born into a very wealthy, pretty family. But God called him to be a spokesman to the nations. Go. He said, here am I. Send me. Now, he was commissioned after this encounter. And it follows. After a person is cleansed. After a person comes in humility. That God would place his call on a person's life. Because now that I'm so grateful for the cleansing of Jesus in my life. I'm so grateful for the work of God in my life. I want to serve him till the day I die. It follows that. And then in verse 9, finally, he says, Go and tell. You could sum up witnessing in those two words, Go and tell. That is evangelism, to go and to tell. Things that you have seen, the things that you have heard. I often hear people say, Oh, but I can't tell them anything. You know, I could never... I spoke to a lady in Colorado this last week, and she was thinking about going overseas with a mission. She goes, But, you know... She was going to a third world country. I don't know anything. I'm not prepared. I said, now listen, tell me what you do know. You know that Jesus died for you and that he loves you and that he can give you eternal life. And you know much more than anyone else over there knows. They'd never heard it before. So you do know. Go, he said to Isaiah, and 
tell. The direction of this church in Albuquerque is going that we're going that direction. God has placed within the hearts of the leadership here to make this fellowship reach out to the whole world. All over the world. With the hope that the church will fill up and be trained and empty out. And be effective for the gospel. We sum it up this way. Our first calling is upreach. Our relationship to God is first and foremost. We push that first and foremost. Relationship with God. Second of all, it's in reach. That is ministry to the body. As we come together, as you're fed in the word and so forth. But third, there's outreach. Going out and exercising. You see, Isaiah didn't, just didn't say, Oh, I just love being right here in this beautiful little visionary kind of a situation with God and I see all this glorious stuff and it's so nice here. God said, Go and tell. Now, there's nothing wrong with being fed the Word. We need to be fed, but we also need to exercise after we eat. And so he's told to go. Put it into action. Go and tell. God help us to not become just another corner church where we tell unbelievers, come and hear the gospel in, in the church. You know, this function this morning is not primarily to preach the gospel to the lost. It's to teach the believers to go out into the world. We know our mentality, though, is we'll bring someone, they'll come and come and hear the gospel instead of going. Jesus didn't say, come ye, he said, go ye into all the world. But we have the mentality of come ye. No, Jesus said, go. You see, we're the salt of the earth, and he doesn't want the church to become a salt block on a corner where we have signs up that says, come by and take a lick every now and then. But that salt block is to be crushed and dispersed out into the world. Go ye into all the world, he said, and preach the gospel to every living creature. Am I speaking about missions? You betcha. But let me clarify something. Missions is anything outside those doors. Okay? Missions is going into deep, dark jungles of Africa and India and all that stuff, but it's also going into deep, dark jungles of UNM and the high schools and the supermarkets and all around town. Those are just as deep and dark if they don't know Christ. And when we speak about missions, it's not just foreign missions, it's anything outside the front doors of the salt block. Go out. Jesus said. Those are the missions. I want to end this morning by reading a couple things to you. Thursday night we showed a movie about the Moravians, the missions of the Moravians and Count Zinzendorf. Now this is what a Christian author said about them. He said this, Zinzendorf and the Moravians proved that an entire communion of believers, call it a church or a denomination if you will, can find reason for being solely on the basis of missions. To the lost and to the unreached multitudes of the world, their fellowship existed solely to send out laborers into the harvest. Everyone and everything pointed to that missionary purpose. For them, missions was not an adjunct to church life. It was church life. Now, I want to balance that out with something else that I'd like to read to you. So that we know that missions isn't just, God send me to Africa. And God is sending people to Africa. We're sending people to the Philippines and God is calling some of you to go on that team. Or down to Mexico, over to Israel. God has already been speaking to a lot of you. 
But what about the missions next door? In our own backyard? Listen to this. What? Go to my neighbor? You've got to be kidding. That woman's a menace, an absolute bore. And he's not much better. You need all of Job's patience if you had the neighbors I'm stuck with next door. Wow, those people beside us are really the limit. Their taste is appalling, their speech I deplore. I know they're lonely, I think that they have troubles, but you can't get involved when you're living next door. Yes, I do think of others. I pray for the heathen who hear the good news on some far distant shore. Through the money I give, they can have Bibles, but I simply can't stand the people next door. When the roll call is finished from cities, from jungles, and the harvest is gathered on heaven's bright shore, when the master of hosts of the ransom has numbered, perhaps he'll turn around and address you once more. Where are the people I gave you next door? Let's pray. Father, you've called us to go and to tell. You've called us, Lord, as a body, a group of believers, whom you're feeding, whom you're instructing, but, Lord, there's also that exercise where we go and we tell. Oh, God, help us to understand and discern your voice on where you'd have us to go, on what you'd have us to be involved with, as we're all members of one another in this body. Lord, we trust that your Spirit will speak, and God, help us that we have the correct vision that in the midst of this black world that you're still sovereign. You're still the boss. And Lord, may we get a true vision of ourselves, approach you in humility, and then with eagerness and readiness say, send me, I'll go. Father, help us to be sensitive to those next door.